Well, hello. It's, it's uh, been a couple of years since I've seen you, and I'm glad to be back and uh, glad to see some of the things happened since I was here last. Um, Owen Niece and Amanda were uh, weeks at the time, right? Weeks Niece. You don't, you don't use the, 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 the full name there. Uh, Amanda Weeks Niece. I don't know. The, uh, Amanda Weeks, as I knew her then, and Owen uh, were two very, uh, not going to surprise you for me to tell you, two very fine young people and students at OBU, and Amanda was a good student in her own right, and I'm sure you've already figuring, you're already figuring out she's a very fine teacher, and I'm sure she'll do a great job doing a lot of things, but I'm sure teaching will be one thing you'll enjoy she can do. I had Owen, and through the whole Greek cycle, which is uh, four semesters of Greek that I taught, um, among other classes, uh, but that's a place where you, you get to see, uh, it, it pushes a little more academically maybe in some other courses, and you could see how bright Owen was. He was one of the best Greek students I've had at OBU, and uh, that's not going to surprise you either because I'm sure that's going to come out in his teaching and his preaching. So, you know, I was kind of, if I could think of a name, I was trying to give a name to the committee or, or help them with names they might have had. And Owen had gone off to New Orleans, and he was just kind of out of my field of vision, you know. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of him to recommend him for any churches in Oklahoma. I just hadn't even come to my mind. The first time somebody mentioned his name, what do you think about? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm just so, so pleased for you all uh, and for Owen and Amanda that you two have been put together and uh, I look forward to uh, many years, I hope, of a great relationship between this church uh, and his family, Owen's family. So congratulations to you and the committee. And uh, here I am back now after two years, and, and a lot's changed with you, and maybe not too much has changed with me, except I don't think I needed these the last time I was here. So that's happened to me, and I may be a little thinner and a little grayer if you look at me up close. Uh, my children now, Levi, uh, Luke is 14, Levi is 10, so next year Luke will start high school, and uh, Levi's in third grade this year, so he'll still be in elementary school. Uh, my wife is doing very well, and uh, we're, all, we're all about the same, just growing a little older, uh, but I'm very pleased to be back with you. This year, it's 2 Corinthians, and, and we're not going to really dive into the Bible study until tonight, so just a, just a sermon from a text in 2 Corinthians this morning, and the text is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, so I'm going later, I usually do like the first chapter and maybe the opening of the letter or something like that, but we're, we're going to go to chapter 12 uh, for the sermon this morning, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to think about what Paul says here when he says, My grace, speaking about the grace of Christ, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this time to gather together with your people. We're grateful for the worship that has already occurred, the prayers, the singing, the ability to lift our voices to you. We're grateful for David who led us so well in the earlier part of the service. And now as we turn to the scripture and uh, the teaching from the scripture, I pray that your word would become alive to us, 
I pray you would open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, and open our hearts that we might receive a message from you. In the name of Christ, amen. I've become convinced, and I guess it's always been true, that our culture is obsessed with strength. To show any hint of weakness is anathema. It's like the worst thing that could happen for someone to find out that you have some weakness, that something's not right in your life. We are obsessed with strength. And I'm sure it's always been true. I notice it more now, but as I think back, I kind of learned to read, reading comic books. And we, there was a little 7-Eleven, it was called a midnight market, across the street from most of the time when I grew up, across the street from me. And so I liked comic books, this is what I wanted to read, and I knew what day of the week and what time of the day the comic book man, the magazine man, arrived to put the new week's magazines up on the shelf. So I kind of watched for him to show up, and then I'd give him a few minutes to get, to get his work done, and then I would get over there, and I'd be standing behind him waiting for him to finish. So I made sure I got the new copy of The Amazing Spider-Man or The Incredible Hulk or Thor, some Marvel comic that I wanted to read. What was true in every one of those comic books, it seemed to me, at the back, there was an ad. And some of you might remember it. It involved a husky man... And then sort of a weak looking man, the 97 pound weakling. And of course the picture is of uh, the big man kicking sand into the face of the weakling and, and saying something like this, listen here, I'd smash your face, only you're so skinny you might dry up and blow away. But the good thing about this ad was if, if you would just take the time to fill out the coupon that was attached to the ad and send it in to Charles Atlas... For a very small amount of money and just 15 minutes a day, Charles Atlas could transform your weak body into something strong. And and the ad goes would go something like this. Give me a skinny, pepless, second-rate body, and I'll cram it so full of handsome, bulging new muscle that your friends will grow bug-eyed. Now, it might surprise you that as a youngster, this sort of fit me. Skinny, pepless, second-rate body. I mean, I read that and thought, he's talking to me. For some reason, I never got around to filling out that coupon, as you can see. But if you would, if I would have, I'm sure that Charles Atlas could have transformed my body so that the next time some husky fella tried to kick sand in my face and presumably take my girlfriend, I could meet force with force. It was all about strength. And you look around in athletics in our day, and you have athletes who on their own skill and on their own hard work could be Hall of Fame type athletes, and yet they're willing to risk their careers, their health, and their legacy just to take performance-enhancing drugs because of the fear that somebody else might be stronger. You might have noticed there's a little political season going on in our country and uh, I've also noticed that in the political debate we we like someone with a little bluster we like someone who projects strength because any hint of vulnerability is the worst thing that could happen what's the price we pay for this obsession with strength 
I, th- I fear that it is, we come to believe that we have to be ashamed of our weaknesses, that we have to hide our weaknesses, that we can't let others know if there's something that's not right with us or some area that we're weak or some area that we still need to grow, we can't let others know. We have to keep it all under wraps. We have to project strength at all times. And of course, we all know deep down inside that weakness is part of the standard operating equipment for every human being. I don't know what yours might be. Might be like mine. Fear, sometimes selfishness, sometimes disease, sometimes depression, sometimes disorganization, sometimes low self-esteem. And even those things that are strengths, our pride, our arrogance can turn those things into weakness. Maybe we should stop trying to hide our weaknesses. Maybe we need to hear the good news about weakness when we come to second corinthians chapter 12 a lot has already gone on and we'll spend the rest of the week tonight through wednesday night talking about what has gone on up to chapter 12 but as we read through we find out that paul's credibility paul's apostleship is being questioned at corinth there are false apostles there are super apostles he calls them and he doesn't really believe they're super there's sarcasm in that, Who, who've arrived at Corinth, and they're calling into question Paul's motives. They take actions that he's taken, and they're, they're saying, you can't trust him as a real apostle. He said he was going to come and visit twice, and he only visited once. He says he's taking an offering for the church at Jerusalem, and I think he's just trying to take advantage of you. And they're, they're, they're turning and twisting things about Paul's ministry and saying, he's not really an apostle that you should trust. And so Paul finds himself in in the face of these charges. They're saying, look at this man who is your apostle. Look at how he suffers. Look at all the the tragic things that keep happening in his life. And he's going to give us a long list of them in chapter 11 about shipwreck and cold and hungry and beaten and, and, and so many of these things that we would look at and say, wow, that's terrible. He must have really made God mad for God to be doing all these things to him. And somehow they're, they're calling into question Paul's apostleship because of all these experiences of weakness and suffering. And so what's Paul going to do? Is he just going to say, well, I don't care what they say. I know it's not true. Or let them talk. The truth will come out in the end. No. When we, when we come to chapter 11, and I, I'm not really going to focus on 11, but this is what sets up what he does in 12. He says at 11.1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And the foolishness foolishness he's talking about is boasting, bragging, talking about your accomplishments. That's what these false apostles are doing. They're giving the people at Corinth like a long list of all their great ministry accomplishments and look at us and we look good and we sound good and we don't have a problem in the world and we're, they project strength, no vulnerability at all. And so is Paul just going to let them talk and hope the truth wins out in the end? Or will he defend himself? Will he do a little boasting of his own? When we get to chapter 11, he's saying, I wish you would bear with me in the little foolishness. Do bear with me. Then look down at chapter 11, verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think that I'm a fool. 
But if you do, then accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What am I saying in regard to this boastful confidence? I'm saying not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to human standards, I will also boast. For you gladly put up with fools being wise yourselves. For you put up with it when someone makes slaves of you or preys upon you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or gives you a slap in the face. Paul says you seem to like it when people show up and brag and boast. So maybe that's what I need to do. So bear with me in a little foolishness. These people who prey on you, you know, P-R-E-Y, I pray for you, but that's not good enough. You like these people who prey upon you. And then he begins his boasting. At, at verse 21, he says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. He says, but when whatever anyone dares to boast of, and he says, now I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So if they claim some sort of Jewish heritage, well, good for them, but they can't compare to my Jewish credentials. And it sounds like then he's going to sort of brag on himself and list all his ministry accomplishments. And, you know, if Paul wanted to boast, he could do some pretty impressive boasting. Think about the churches that he established. He could claim that to a large degree the gospel had spread across the Roman Empire because of his missionary efforts. That's not bad. As a church planter, as a missionary, the number of people that he could claim might have come to follow Jesus because of his ministry. If Paul wants to boast, he could do some boasting. And maybe that's what we're expecting him to do. And then he says in verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, floggings, near death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. And you're thinking, well, okay, well, where's the boasting? These aren't the kinds of things we usually boast in. This sounds like suffering. This sounds like hardship. How about the churches you've established? Give us some numbers. How many people have you baptized? He says, three times I was shipwrecked. For night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Yeah, where's the boasting? And he says, and besides all these other things, I'm under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all my churches. On top of all the other hardships I suffer, on top of what the, 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 the Jews who do not believe Jesus is Messiah have done to me, on top of whatever the Gentiles have done to me, I can't get a good, a good night's sleep because of you. Where's the boasting? Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I'm not indignant. So this is, this is his boasting. He's boasting in his weakness. He's boasting in his hardships. He's boasting in his suffering. And that brings us to chapter 12, verse 1. The good news about weakness. He says it's necessary to boast. 
Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. Now, Paul doesn't say these super apostles are boasting about their heavenly tourism. You know, visions that God may have given them of heaven, insight that God may have given them about what heaven looks like. He doesn't say that's what these opponents are doing. But you can almost read between the lines that somehow in the first century, heavenly tourism was a big deal. That if God gave you a vision and showed you heaven in a way that he didn't show everybody, that shows something of how close you are to God and, and how he communicates with you in ways that are even deeper than he communicates with others. And so, you want to talk about heavenly visions? Oh, I can talk about heavenly visions, he says. You want to brag about your heavenly tourism? Oh, I've been there. And apparently, it's not just a first century phenomenon. You go to your local Christian bookstore today, and I bet you can find a best-selling book that has to do with heavenly tourism. Somebody who has a vision of heaven and comes back and report it to the rest of us. If you look around closely, you might find the book 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper, a 2004 book. Four years, this book was on the New York Times bestsellers list. The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, 2010. Kevin Malarkey, a Christian therapist in Columbus, Ohio, writes about a visionary experience that his son, then six years old, described to him after a car accident where he was nearly killed. And, and his, his son, when he came through this, explained to him a vision that he had. He wrote all this down and published it as the boy who came back from heaven. A best-selling book. That was in 2010. In January 2015, the young boy Alex wrote an open letter to Lifeway Christian Bookstores apologizing for the story that was not true. And he feared that too many people were taking it too seriously. And maybe it's not books you prefer, maybe it's movies. The 2014 film Heaven is for Real about Colton Burpo, the four-year-old son of a Nebraska pastor who had to have an emergency appendectomy and claimed that he had this experience while he was going through that and that he saw a great-grandfather that was dead before he was born and that he met a sister that he never could have met because his mother had a miscarriage before he was born. And he met John the Baptist and he saw Jesus riding a multicolor horse. And Jesus actually allowed him to sit in his lap. And heavenly tourism is all the rage. And Paul says, you want to you boast about your heavenly visions? Well, listen to mine. And when he does it, it's like, you ever, you ever say, uh, you ask somebody a question, say it's for a friend, but it's really for you. Paul sort of uses that technique. I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven paradise. Now, whether it was in the body or not, I don't know. Whether it's a vision, I don't know. God knows. Well, this is, uh, he's speaking, you know, the friend is him. That becomes rather clear. He's the one who has the vision. And he says he's caught up into the third heaven. Now, that's like the highest 
heaven. That's like the heaven and the heaven of the heavens. Not everybody gets caught up into the third heaven. You may have had a heavenly vision, but I bet you just got to the first level. And oh, maybe if you had a really extraordinary event, maybe you made it to the second level of heaven. But Paul says, I know a man who made it all the way to the third level. Paradise. Well, it almost sounds like Paul's boasting. It sounds like he's given up now on the suffering and the weakness, and now he's actually going to boast. He's actually going to give his credentials, you know, and say, hey, I had a vision no one else has had. And he says, I heard things that were too grand for me to share with other mortals. Sounds like he's bragging. That's what I call bragging. Sounds like he's sort of gone over to more traditional boasting now. But the fact is, it's not the heavenly vision that he's really going to boast about. He has to mention the heavenly vision in order to get to the thing he's going to boast about. And we're getting to that. Look at verse 5. He says, on behalf of such a one I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not accept of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of my revelations. And then we get to what he really wants to say. It's not the heavenly vision. That's what he's talked about in 1 through 7. It's the thorn in the flesh that comes to him as a result of this heavenly vision that God gave to him. He says, therefore, to keep me from being too conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too conceited. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, I am strong. Paul had had this extraordinary vision somewhere around 42. 2 Corinthians is written about 56. So about 42, he'd had this great event, this great experience where he had this vision. But then as a result of that vision... A messenger of Satan, at least as he understood it initially, came to him to torment him. A thorn in the flesh. Now, I I wish I could come to you. I'm a teacher. I like to have answers. I wish I could come to you today and say, well, here was Paul's thorn in the flesh. But I can't. I don't know what it was. He uses a Greek word, scallops. I can tell you that. But that just means something sharp, something pointed. Uh, it could be the, the tip of a fish hook. Uh, it could be a pail or a stake upon a, which a person might be tortured or even killed. It could be like the tip of a nail could be referred to. It's just something really sharp like a thorn. And he said, I had one of these, a thorn in the flesh. And I think sometimes we hear that and think, well, that, you know, it's like a slight annoyance. It's like an irritation. You know, that if Paul would just focus better, maybe he could just move on. It wouldn't be that big a deal. But this is something that can mean a stake upon which a person could be tortured or even executed. 
I don't think Paul's thorn in the flesh was just one of these, you know, a minor irritation. We talk about a thorn in the flesh. Have you ever, you ever come home from work and said, man, that person in the cubicle next to me is a thorn in my flesh. Or, uh, or maybe some sort of minor issue that we have and we say, it's a thorn in my flesh. I don't think Paul's talking about just a minor irritation. I think he's talking about something really serious. That is an ongoing struggle for him. So much so that he prays repeatedly. Asking, God, take this thing away from me. And what's God's response? Well, he prays once. God, take this thorn. This sharp pointed instrument that is causing me pain. Take it away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, that's good, but could you take this thorn away from me? No, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That's good, but is there anybody else I can talk to? I just want this thorn to be taken away. And three times God says no. Does that remind you of another story, much even more famous in the New Testament, of someone praying three times for something to be taken away and essentially receives the same answer? God says no, can't do it. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and both Matthew and Mark's account, he prays three times. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. And each time God says no. Jesus was enrolled, just like Paul is, in a school called Grace. I prefer it to call it that. Some people call it the school of hard knocks. I'd call it the school of grace. And there are lessons to be learned in the school of God's grace that cannot be learned anywhere else. It's not a school I would encourage you to enroll in, but it's a school in which you'll find yourself enrolled if you live any length of time in this world. The school of grace. What was Paul learning in the school of God's grace? I think Paul was learning that when our weaknesses are evident, it is equally evident that whatever accomplishments we have, whatever triumphs come in our life, that it's Christ working through us. Paul says, I I just want to be truthful here because I don't want people to think that all the good things that might happen in my life are because of my stinking genius. It's not. If you never allow others to see the weakness in your life, if you never allow others to see who you really are, with all your frailties and all your human weaknesses, then people might start to believe that the successes that you have are because of your genius. I mean, if Paul never allowed us to see all the struggles that he had, the thorn in the flesh, all the, all the suffering that he went through, we might start to think that Paul had all these great accomplishments because he was a genius. Because he was some sort of spiritual savant. And man, if we could just be like Paul, we could be successful too. But Paul wants to say, I've got my problems. I have my struggles. I have weaknesses. And the good things that happen in my life are because Christ is working through me. I think the other and even more important lesson 
that Paul was learning in this school of God's grace is that suffering is the means by which God is conforming us into his own image. Only in the school of grace is a thorn a good thing. Suffering is God's greatest tool for conforming us into the image of Christ. Here's what God was really doing in Paul through this thorn in the flesh, and it's the same thing he can do for us through our own suffering. He's trying to wean me off of me. And do you have any idea how hard that is to wean me off of me? See, I'm more than willing to tell you today I have a big problem. And I've got to be very careful about it every day of my life. I've got a big problem. I'm, in, I'm obsessed with me. I want more power. I want more influence. And I want more popularity. And it's been so as long as I can remember. Third grade on the playground. I figured out very quickly. That the kids who seemed to do the best and the kids that, you know, did well and everybody wanted to follow and be like were the kids who were, had more power and who had more popularity and had more influence. I learned it right there on the playground in elementary school. Well, you'd think, but at the time I got to high school, I would have figured it out that that's not true. And I wouldn't have been worried about my own power and influence and popularity, but it's not true. In high school, I was still worried about all those things for myself. Well, maybe by college he'll mature and grow up and he'll just be worried about others then. He'll see that what really matters in life is that you're concerned about others. But it didn't happen for me like that in high school. I was still worried about my power and my influence and my popularity. And here I am, 50, almost 51 years old, and I still have this problem. I'm obsessed with myself. And I still, if I'm not careful, start to think it's about my power and my influence and my popularity. Suffering is a means by which God can wean me off of me. And that's not easy to do. It's like trying to wean a child off of sugar who their whole childhood they've only had Dr. Peppers and sugary candy. It's like trying to wean an adult off of cigarettes who's addicted to nicotine. It's like trying to wean an adult off of whiskey who's an alcoholic. It's not easy to wean me off of me. And it's probably not easy to wean you off of you. But suffering is the primary means God uses to do just that. And that's what Paul was learning in the school of God's grace. And when he prayed three times, take this thing away from me. And each time God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he came back and he said, yeah, that's great. But I'd really like for you to take the thorn away. He was demonstrating the very thing that I've encountered in my own life. God says, my grace is sufficient. And I say, yeah, that's great. But I don't want that. I want out. Grace is good. But, I, but if I have to take the thorn with it, I want out. We find ourselves in a, in a situation, maybe in a marriage, that's just not working. 
And so we just decide, this isn't working, and God, I need out of this. And God, how can I get out of this? And maybe God's saying, you don't need out. My grace is sufficient for you. Maybe the thing you need to do is to understand that through my grace, I can help you overcome those obstacles in your marriage so that your marriage can display my power and my grace to the world. Maybe you've got a difficult situation at work. Maybe you work with somebody and they're just so difficult and you say, I'm going to have to find another job. My work situation is just toxic. I want out. Maybe God's saying, you don't need out. You need to come to terms with the fact that His grace is sufficient for you. And maybe God can do something in your work situation to display His power and His grace. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're enduring some sort of illness or disease. Maybe there are mental health issues in your family. And you say, God, take it away. Maybe God's saying, out is not what you need right now. My grace is sufficient for you. Maybe in your suffering, God can show forth His grace And his power in ways he could not in any other way. Maybe what we need is not out. Maybe we need to understand God's grace is sufficient. It's hard to wean me off of me. But suffering has the potential to do just that. I think at the end of it all, Paul figured out it wasn't about his power and it wasn't about his influence and it wasn't about his popularity. That it was about Christ's power and expanding Christ's influence and in expanding Christ's popularity. It wasn't about his pip. It was about Christ's. And as he came to realize this, he came to realize that the more grace I get, the more God I get. If you want more God, then you need more grace. If you want more grace, you're going to need to come to terms with your weakness. Well, in fact, I think you could almost substitute Christ for grace. You think about the great John Newton hymn that you'll recognize. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved." Well, you could just substitute Christ in that. "'Twas Christ that taught my heart to fear, and Christ my fear relieved." To get more grace is to have more Christ. This is the school of grace you don't have to hide your weaknesses you don't have to be ashamed of the areas in which you are weak where you might be immature or where you might suffer or struggle you don't have to be ashamed this is the good news about weakness I can glory in my weaknesses because when I am weak then I am strong. Let's pray.
Our Father, I pray we hear this as good news today. That we are all weak. That we all have our areas where we want to hide. We don't want others to see. We don't want others to know. We want to project strength. We want to always project that everything's good and everything's fine. Father, speak to us today and let us know it's okay to confess that I am weak. It's all right for others to see our weaknesses because your grace is sufficient and it's in those weaknesses that you make us strong. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who's wrestling with all kinds of things in their life and they're so desperately in need of your grace. Maybe they've never experienced it, not even for the first time. They're searching. They're longing to find what they're looking for, peace and security and purpose. They need grace. Father, I pray that person would come down here Take one of these staff members by the hand. Maybe there's a believer here today who's going through suffering, tragedy, disease, hardship. And they need to confess again today that your grace is sufficient. Maybe they just need to come and pray on this altar. Whatever it is, that you're saying today. I pray that each one would respond. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.